Man, I want to have walk-up music like that every time I preach. That gets you going. Uh, I am Pete Stearns, and I'm one of our pastors here, and I'm excited to be uh, jumping into this series, this narrative uh, of Daniel. I've been struck throughout our study uh, just of the juxtaposition and the contrast between the Israelite humility and the Babylonian pride. And today we're going to be finishing up a story that Dan began last week that I think uh, has been foreshadowed throughout the entire book. This battle, this internal conflict that rages in so many of us reaches its climax here in Belshazzar's throne room. You see, the tension between pride and humility is one of the foundational conflicts of the human condition. I mean, we can look back even to the very earliest verses in Scripture where we read that Adam and Eve choose to eat fruit from the tree of good and evil. And believe it or not, it wasn't because they just wanted a delicious snack, Right? They eat from this tree because they believe that if they eat from that tree, they will be elevated to the status of the gods, that they will know what God knows. We have seen nations and empires rise and fall on the backs of power-hungry dictators. We have seen mass genocides by countries and people groups that view themselves as superior to the rest. Just last week, I watched the movie Harriet, which uh, follows the life of the Underground Railroad conductor Harriet Tubman. And I was reminded of the ramifications of unchecked arrogance as it resulted in the cruel and gruesome acts of slavery in our own country that still impact us to this day. On a less serious note, many of our favorite companies have teetered on the brink of total collapse because of the self-focused interests of their CEOs and founders. It seems that every time we open up the tabloids, Elon Musk is there not for his brilliant inventions, but rather for his acts of arrogance. We're reminded that Steve Jobs was actually fired from Apple because his leadership style was so filled with pride that people couldn't stand him. He was hired back a a decade later. We have heard stories of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. And if you followed the the rideshare sensation Uber, you recognize just how close they were to closing up shop because of the self-inflected wounds of their prideful leader, Travis Kalanick. You see, the point is, is that This is a battle that resonates with all of us. And while it might not be on the same level as these CEOs, as genocide, as as Belshazzar, it is certainly a tension that we can relate with. And so the story we dive into today puts this conflict under the microscope. It gives us a chance to really look at what it means to live a life of pride versus humility. But more importantly, it gives us an opportunity to look inwardly at this conflict that resides within ourselves and ask ourselves, how am I going to step forward to begin winning this battle? Well, last week, Dan left us on somewhat of a cliffhanger. And so I'm going to catch us up here for a moment 
The year was 539 BC, and the Medes and Persian armies were encamped surrounding the city of Babylon, prepared to take uh, reign over this once great nation. The people in the city are filled with panic, but their tone-deaf leader, the acting king Belshazzar, chooses not to fortify the walls, not to prepare his troops, but rather to throw a party for his thousand closest friends. This party is filled with drinking and debauchery. And about halfway through, he turns to his servants and tells them to go to the storehouses and to bring forth the holy relics of the Israelite temple. You see, these goblets were the goblets that were used for the cleansing of sins and for the giving of offerings before God. But Belshazzar wanted to use them to serve his guests more wine. Immediately after doing this, a disembodied hand appears and begins writing an inscription on the wall. Well, historians say that, that this event happened in late October, so I think that this was just God's way of doing a Halloween prank. But in all seriousness, it struck fear and terror in all of the guests. And Belshazzar is, is trembling underneath the burden of this fear of what these words mean. And so he calls to his wise men, his interpreters, his magicians to come in and tell him what this message on the wall means. Because the message was written in Aramaic. It's one of these languages that only uses consonants and allows you to fill in the vowels with the most uh, likely combinations. But the message that was written up there on the wall had a variety of different interpretations and none of them seemed to make a whole lot of sense. Well, Belshazzar's magicians could not interpret the writing on that wall, which conjured up even more fear in the guests. And it's at this moment that Belshazzar's uh, mother or grandmother enters the room. And we know that the queen is not his wife because of the unprecedented authority that she has in the throne room. It says, the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. And he did this because Daniel, who the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So the queen reminds Belshazzar of the works of the Israelite God as seen through the prophet Daniel. You see, Belshazzar surely knows who Daniel is He's heard witness of his testimony from his, his father and his grandfather. He's probably seen the acts and the miracles uh, throughout the course of the Babylonian history. Uh, but in that moment of fear, he forgets. And so his mother or grandmother comes in and reminds him to call for Daniel. So Daniel was brought before the king. 
And the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in all of the kingdom. And here's where we see that contrast between the Israelite humility and the Babylonian pride. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. You see, Daniel recognizes that the rewards of heaven have, or the rewards of earth have no bearing in heaven. He also recognizes that his ability to interpret dreams, his ability to read this inscription on the wall, has nothing to do with his own merit, but instead is attributed only to God. And so he refuses this unprecedented earthly stature. But still, he recognizes this as an opportunity to speak the voice of God to a crowd of unbelievers. And so he seizes that opportunity so that he can be a witness to the glory of God of his God. Now the next part of the story is one that we often skim past. You see, we're excited to read what the the words actually mean. What is this thing that God has inscribed on the wall with a disembodied hand? And so, so we kind of skim past the next passage. But in doing so, I think we miss out on an opportunity to look at our lives and understand how that tension between pride and humility impacts each and every one of us. You see, because the next part of the story, Daniel levels a threefold indictment against Belshazzar's pride. And in each of these pieces of the indictment are poignant truths for our life today. So let's look into this indictment together. If you have your Bibles, you can open with us to Daniel 5, verse 22, or you can look on the screens. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. So Daniel starts by recognizing that Belshazzar, when he says, you have known all of this, he's referring back to all of the works that God has done. The way that God has impacted the reign of the Babylonian kings. The way that God has spoken truth into the throne room of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. The way that God has saved his servants from the fiery furnace. And Daniel says, you knew about God's testimony. You have seen his works firsthand. But still, you have chosen to set your life up against his. In spite of the fact that you have recognized and you have seen God's marvelous work time and time again, you have still chosen to follow your own path. You see, the first indictment of Belshazzar's pride is this. You have ignored God's way and have instead pursued 
your own. I don't know about you, but this is convicting for me. Because each and every one of us, like Belshazzar, have witnessed to God's miracles. In fact, unlike the Babylonians, we have all of God's work written down for us right here in the pages of Scripture. Each of us has likely experienced the miraculous work of God in our lives or or somebody close to us. We've seen God move in mysterious ways. We've come together with a fellowship of other believers, and and we've praised our God, we've worshipped him, we've experienced his tangible presence time and time again. And yet still, I often choose my own way rather than God's. You see, we see God's way as almost an enrichment to our way. A nice addition when it's convenient, but certainly not something that dictates the entirety of our life. C.S. Lewis says it like this. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on thing and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You see, this quote resonates with me because I find that in my day-to-day life, I am far more consumed with the things and the people in my life than I am with God's call to my life. I'm worried about the projects at home. I'm worried about the maintenance of my cars, the ability to pay my bills, the relationships that I have with friends and family. And I spend all of my time trying to control the outcomes of those areas in my life. And then when I have a spare moment, I look up to God. But C.S. Lewis says, look, you can't know God. You can't truly be in relationship with God if most of your attention is focused downward. Because when you're looking down, you simply cannot see God's higher purposes. I mean, I think about times that I've been convicted to give. Or I've been called by my peers or another pastor to give generously. And I panic for a moment, and then I look to my bank account in order to justify my inability to give in this moment. But at the same time... I seem to always have enough money when there's one of those deals that you just can't pass up at the store. A two for one. I've got to get this thing. I feel the same way in my relationship with my neighbors. Over and over, I feel God nudging me to be a witness to my neighbors. They know that I'm a pastor. Many of them are not believers, and there are opportunities all over for me to be a witness to them. But I look at my life and I say, my schedule is so busy, God. Right now is just not the right time. I don't have time to be intentional with my neighbors. Yet, I always seem to find quite a few hours on Saturdays and Sundays to watch my favorite teams play. You see, the reality is, is when we are focused on our own lives, we miss out on the sovereignty of God. And we need to ask ourselves the question, 
Does the sovereignty of God dictate my actions or do I instead pursue the outcomes of this world? You see, because Daniel would have us believe that this is an issue of pride. And if we find ourselves leaning towards the tendency to pursue our own way rather than God's, we can bet on the fact that we are losing this internal battle. Daniel continues in his indictment. In verse 23, he says, You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and your nobles. Your wives and your concubines drank from them. So last week, Dan told us about how, how he had taken these sacred vessels of the Israelite people. But the reality is, is that these were items, these were gifts that were intended for God's glory, but instead were being used for Belshazzar's glory. And so the second piece of this indictment reads something like this. You have used God's gifts for your own glory. You see, because Belshazzar knows the power of God. He's seen his hand at work. He's seen his grandfather rise and fall to power and then rise again due to his abuse and use of God's gifts in his life. But still, he chooses to use God's gifts to pursue his own gain. In 2013, I was given a new role here at Christ Church that I was particularly excited about. I was a young pastor and I had been on staff for just a few years. And we were going to have each of our three contemporary services function as their own separate worship experiences. And I was given the leadership role to serve our five o'clock worship community. This meant that I was going to have a chance to oversee community gatherings and events that we had together. I was going to be assisting in worship every single week uh, as, as a familiar face for the community. And then I was going to be preaching uh, fairly regularly, almost every other week. And let me tell you, I was swelling with pride. I was patting myself on the back. Man, look at me. I'm young and I'm being given this authority and it's because I can do this well and that well. And I was just swelling with pride. I was so full of myself. And I remember on December 14th of 2013, I got up on stage and this was gonna be the first night of this new brand for our worship services. And so I was assisting and let me tell you, I crushed those announcements. I really, it was impressive stuff. Look back in the archives, really good. Um, and I remember getting off the stage, and I kid you not, I'm not making this up for this sermon. I got off the stage, and I thought to myself, Pete, you're the man. Right, that honestly was the thought that went through my head. And then after the service, I got to shake people's hands, and, and I was like kind of schmoozing with everyone, and I was like, man, I am so good at this. This is, this is awesome. And I just remember this, this overwhelming sense of arrogance. And even at the time, I kind of knew, I was like, yeah, I'm in a bad spot right now. But I just wanted to ignore it because it felt so good. And I kid you not, an hour and a half later, I was sitting on my butt on the ice rink with a shattered leg. I broke my leg, I broke my tibia, dislocated my fibula, and uh, tore all of the ligaments in my ankle. For the next eight months, I couldn't walk. I couldn't drive, 
I couldn't bathe myself. I couldn't clothe myself. More importantly, I couldn't get up on the stage to preach because the pain in my leg was too strong. So everything that I had been working towards had all been, been put on hold. Every single time I needed to go to work or to the class or one of my classes for seminary, I had to rely on friends or family or coworkers. Let me tell you, my pride went from about here to here. It was one of the most humbling experiences of my life. And I look back on that anytime I'm tempted to be prideful because I realize just how fragile the things of this world really are. The reality was with something as trivial as a broken leg, everything that I had built or that I had thought that I had built would be gone. And I found myself realizing that these gifts, these blessings in my life can only be attributed to God. Now, don't get me wrong, I still struggle with pride. I still find myself in those arrogant places. But when I do, I look back on that period of life and I think to myself, all of these things have been given to me by God and can be taken away in as swift of a moment as ice skating with your wife. I remember two months after uh, I had the broken leg and I was kind of hobbling around on crutches and a, and a gentleman in our prayer ministry who was just a phenomenal prayer warrior told me, you know, Pete, I really believe that we can pray over this and, and bring healing to your body. And I said to him, honestly, I don't think I've learned my lesson yet. Right, I think God taught me something powerfully through that moment. And I've been struck over and over through this study of Daniel on the humility of the Israelites. You can ask my small group, every time we come together and we say, what did we learn from this week? My first reaction is all like, how in the world did Daniel not take even an ounce of credit for interpreting the king's dream? Right, the king like pours all of this praise on him. Couldn't he just say like, thank you and reap all of these rewards and then later that night pray and thank God for it? Like, because that's how I would prefer to function. I would like to take that earthly glory, but then I also want to make sure that I'm, I'm praying to God to thank him for those blessings. But no, Daniel and his peers are constantly pointing the Babylonians back to God. And I realize that when we do that, we use the gifts that God has put in our life, those sacred objects, to glorify him rather than ourselves. And every single time we take credit for our talents, for our blessings, and hold tightly to them, we are robbing God of an opportunity to be a witness to our world and transform our community. If you find yourself using the gifts and the blessings that God has poured out on you to pursue your own glory and your own achievement, you're losing this battle against pride. And humility is being suffocated from your life. Daniel continues when he says this. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds you in the hand of his life, or holds your hand in his life. You see, Belshazzar had an opportunity to see just how pointless the worship of idols was. King Nebuchadnezzar had, had created the greatest idol that had ever been made. 
It was this massive golden statue, and he had called all of the land to worship it, and there were just three people that refused, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down before this idol, and in doing so, they risked their lives. They were thrown into the fiery furnace, but they were not incinerated. Instead, they came out without one hair on their body being singed, and Nebuchadnezzar offered a decree to all of the land that basically said, don't mess with the Israelite God. He is legit. But Belshazzar continues to promote idol worship. In spite of seeing the real God in action, he still decides to make statues of bronze and wood, iron and gold for he and his nobles to worship. He still sends out edicts to his land to worship these man-made objects, knowing full well that they do not have the power of the God of the Israelites. And so the third piece of this indictment says that you have worshipped gods the world made rather than the God who made the world. You see, in our culture, we don't often worship graven images, But I've also found that the practice of idol worship is probably more prevalent today than it has ever been in the history of our world. You see, our world is is constantly producing idols for us to worship. Idols of achievement, of success, of power, of notoriety. Idols of, of comfort and fun and happiness. And unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I continue to bow to these idols. Just last week, uh, my parents were in town, and we're all diehard Seattle Seahawks fans. And so we were watching the Monday night football game together uh, with the Seahawks against the 49ers. And it was a crazy nail-biter of a game, uh, and the Seahawks ended up winning it. But in the first quarter, it did not look so good for us. And that kind of got us all into a grouchy mood. After the first quarter, we were down 10 to nothing. And I remember my dad and I had this conversation about how every single time the Seahawks lose, we're unbearable to be around. Like we just get so grouchy and and upset and angry. So you should all be thankful that I'm not a Bears fan. And like we can't sleep at night, we're like replaying in our head these plays that if only we could have had the ability to change it, uh, even though there's like no possible way to do that. And, And our thoughts are just swirling with these frustrations. And I realize if that's not idol worship, I don't know what is. And again, that seems trivial, but we do this over and over. We see these things that our world has put before us as important and we pursue them with all of our hearts and when we fall short, we find it impacting our mood, our attitude, and more importantly, our witness. We do this with academics as we push our children into the pressing rigors of school, constantly telling them that all I want from you is your best and I know that your best is an A. We do this in the workplace, where we constantly pursue the next promotion, the next best thing. We leverage the relationships that we have with others, and we use them as a stepping stone to the next best. 
We pursue this with our finances. We pursue this with our possessions. We pursue this with our homes. I find that we are constantly bowed down before the idols of this world. And in doing so, we realize that pride has taken a hold of our lives. As we recognize we would rather bow down to the idols the world has made rather than the God that has made this world. You see, this is the indictment that is leveled against Belshazzar and in many ways is leveled against us as well. And so now we turn to hear the verdict that is brought to them by God through the writing on the wall. Verse 24 says, Therefore he, meaning God, sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, person. Here is what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. That night, Belshazzar was executed and the great nation of Babylon fell. You see, the verdict here is that if we have chosen a way of pride versus humility, we have communicated to God that we would like our lives to be weighed against his life. In choosing pride, we have denied salvation. In choosing pride, we have assumed that our way is sufficient. But I guarantee when your life, aside from the work of God in it, is placed on the scales against his, you will always be found wanting. So we're left with the question, how do we begin reversing the tides of this battle that rages within? How do we begin to lean more on humility than we do pride? How do we stomp pride out in our life so that God can be glorified and we can be a testimony of his sovereignty in our world? Well, first, if we believe that pride means choosing our way over God's way, then we need to know what God's way is. And the only way to know what God's way is is to commit ourselves to reading of scripture, and root ourselves in a life of prayer. Unlike the Babylonians, we are blessed with this book that has the voice of God page after page. And if we commit ourselves to opening this every day and diving headfirst into the words of our God, and then committing ourselves to prayer, opening our lives to his word and his spirit, then we will find that when we reach those points in our day in which we are to choose humility or pride, we will become more likely to choose humility. We will become more likely to enter into God's way rather than our own way. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to work every single time. But if we know God's scripture and we know God's way, and we've opened our lives to his voice, we will be much better equipped to make the decision for humility versus pride. The second thing that we can do is we can begin practicing gratitude. 
I have been particularly struck by gratitude in my own life over the past couple of months. You see, when we are using God's gifts for our glory, we are neglecting to thank God and root ourselves in gratitude for what he has given us. But when we begin to practice that gratitude, we begin to take those blessings, those talents, those treasures, those abilities, and we begin to offer glory to God. And when we do that personally, it will begin to leak out into our lives. I would encourage you to go beyond just thanking God in prayer or thanking God quickly in your head when something good happens to you, but instead to begin a gratitude journal. I've been studying a lot of the social science that goes behind this because it's one of these disciplines that is particularly effective in helping adolescents face the pressures of social media and the constant cycle of being told that they're not enough or what they have is not enough. But it also helps us root ourselves in an understanding that everything that we have is given to us from God. And it keeps us from going unchecked for too long. Write three things down a day. Do it for 30 days. See what happens. Because I'm confident it's going to begin to shift this tension towards humility rather than pride. The final piece that I'm particularly excited about is something that I call secret service. You see, we're familiar here with service. Many of us are involved in service projects around the holidays. We, we amp up our service as we try to provide uh, the same types of experiences that we have for those that are less privileged. We are invested in our youth and our children here. Uh, we understand what service is and we pursue it often. A lot of times the unintended consequence in public service is that we end up receiving this encouragement and praise from others that take this once good thing and turn it into something that produces this swelling pride within us that causes us to bow to that idol of appreciation and notoriety and influence. And so a spiritual discipline that I think is particularly transformative is is practicing service in secrecy. Taking time to serve others when they will not possibly know that it was you that did that. Refusing to take their appreciation and their accolades. Maybe this means shoveling a neighbor's driveway and never telling them that you shoveled it. Maybe it's doing the dishes uh, without telling your spouse that you did the dishes. This is particularly hard for me because you would think that every single time I did the dishes, it was the greatest accomplishment of my life. I always turn to, Brittany, did you see that I did the dishes? <laughs> yes, Pete, I did. Well, then why aren't you patting me on the back? You see, what if instead of looking for that reward that is rooted here in earth, we instead did those things recognizing that in doing so in secret, we are offering glory to God and we are rooting our rewards in his sovereignty and his eternal kingdom. Practice secrecy each and every day and you will find that humility grows in your life. If we're committed to reversing the battle that rages within us. If we want to stomp out pride in our lives and be a picture of humility so that God can have glory 
and we can be a witness to his sovereignty, then we need to root ourselves in scripture, commit ourselves to prayer, intentionally engage in gratitude, and serve his kingdom and his people with an intention of glorifying him rather than ourselves. Let's make this commitment together today. And let's become a community that is known for our humility and is known for our ability to glorify God rather than ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we admit to you that more often than not, we choose pride when given the option between arrogance and humility. Lord, I admit that I am losing this battle. And Lord, I pray that today you would give me the courage to step forward in humility. Lord, to commit myself to prayer and scripture, to invest deeply in the practice of gratitude, and to open myself for service in secret. Lord, we pray that we would be a community known for the glory that we give to you rather than ourselves. And Lord, in doing so, we would give you an opportunity to transform your world today. We pray this in your name. Amen.